Good evening. We are here to talk about the National Theatre's current production of Timberlake Wurtenbecker's play, Our Country's Good, which has been directed by Nadia Fall. Um, I'm going to start with you, Timberlake, because um, you and I have known one another quite a long time now, <laughs> on and off. And um, I suspect we probably met for the first time round about the time that this play was first done. Uh, when I was at the RSC, and you were all over the place doing all sorts of things, but including at the RSC. And um, you've had an absolutely wonderful career. I mean, when I looked today, just at the list of everything that you've done, right up to date with that sensationally wonderful adaptation of War and Peace on Radio 3, which I don't know if any of you heard it, on New Year's Day this year, brilliant. You never need to read the book. <laughs> no, actually, no, you do need to read the book. But um, you, you've covered a lot of ground in that time and uh, many, many plays and adaptations and academic work and all sorts of other things as well. This play, however, has had a peculiar kind of resonance and a long life and is talked about and indeed studied very widely. When it first emerged, when you were working on it, first of all, how did you come upon the source material? The um, source material was actually offered to me by the then artistic director of the Royal Court, Max Stafford Clark, who said who wa he wanted a companion piece to Farquhar's The Recruiting Officer because um, the Royal Court was new writing and really he wanted to do a classic and the excuse was <laughs> we'll just put a little new play there. And really, it was, it, it, it was no more pressured than that. And he had um, just read um, the, um, Thomas Keneally's book, The Playmaker, and he said, oh, why don't you adapt it? And I said, I don't believe in adapting novels. I mean, I did actually say that. Um, and he said, well, just do what you want, you know. And um, Keneally sort of allowed this because it was meant to be on for about 16 performances. That's really how it started, in a very um, casual way, I would say. But um, we did two weeks of, workshop and of workshops, and the minute we started the workshops, uh, probably because of the actors who were involved, because The Fatal Shore had just been published and because I had a particular interest in prisons and prisoners um, and wanted to investigate that. It, 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 something quite wonderful happened even in the workshops mm. and it was very inspiring and then I wrote the play. Mm. What you didn't mention amongst the things that you were interested in at the time but, was, but it is very strongly present in this um, piece uh, is, was your politics, your feminist politics particularly. And um, I think when we come to talk to Nadia, we'll probably be seeing the next generation of thinking about that. But at the time, did the material strike you as, as in itself, notably, as it were, feminist? Or were you looking for that and pulling it out of it? It wasn't, um, no, I, I wouldn't say the material was feminist. I wouldn't even say the material was overtly political. I mean, the, the Keneally's novel is not overtly political. But, um, I mean, two things were happening. We were under Thatcherism at the time, which um, 
politically meant that we all had heard the famous phrase, you know, there is no such thing as society, or some version of it. I mean, this was very strong. The theatre was being belittled. And um, in terms of feminism, it was simply that there, there were very few women around, and I had been to groups where actresses had said to me, you know, we have no parts. I mean, the, the complaint that goes on until today. Mm. Um, we, have, we don't have interesting parts. We always have minor parts. So it wasn't... I mean, I didn't set out to write a feminist play. I don't think it is a f feminist play. I wouldn't even call it an overtly political play, but it obviously came from everything I was feeling at the time. So that um, th I changed, for example, and we will talk about this later, the character of um, Liz Morden. I mean, that is a completely invented character. She is not in the novel. Um, and it was based on a woman prisoner who was interviewed. So you know, what does a writer do? I think a writer combines all their passions and then tries to do the job as well, which was to make a play that more or less worked, which was more or less <laughs> based on the material that was <laughs> given to me. Um, and it sounds as if you did have very considerable freedom to use that material quite uh, flexibly and, I, and loosely. I had remarkable freedom. I think Thomas Keneally was very generous in not, over, not looking over my shoulders at all. And um, Max also was um, very generous in saying that I could really write in any way I wanted. Mm. Um, so it wasn't, it, it, no, I didn't set out to write an adaptation of a novel. Mm. It was really whatever play I wanted to write. And I think that freedom was, was terribly important. And it w it's a freedom that's not always given to women playwrights, or certainly wasn't given to women playwrights at the time, which is what I'm trying to say. I knew it was going to go on at the Royal Court downstairs, in other words, not upstairs, not in a studio theatre, and that was not that common. And it allowed me to spread out a bit. And um, I had unlimited... Um, sort of unlimited imagination. I mean, no one said you have to write about, you know, the domestic sphere or you have to write about this, you have to write about that. I think they'd have been very foolish to try to say <laughs> that to you. <laughs> 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 but anyway, um, Nadia, you came to this play, I understand it, with no previous acquaintance with it. No. So I mean, <laughs> tell us how it, how it came to you and, and what struck you about it when you first Well, yes, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I didn't know the play and I hadn't read it. And so many of my friends and colleagues had read it, studied it or been in it at drama school. And I didn't have any of that sort of nostalgic memory of the play, which turned out to, I think, be a blessing in disguise because it was completely fresh for me and it was a complete, you know, instinctive response to what I was reading. So in the end, I think, well, from people who've seen the play over the years, feel that it's a very um, new and individual interpretation of the play. So, so, but when you, so when you first encountered it, I assume somebody put it in front of you and said, you might like this. Yes. Or words to that effect. Uh, ben Power and Rufus um, put the play in front of me and I fell in love with it straight away. I thought Timberlake's language is beautiful and timeless. So even though it was written in the 80s about something that happened, you know, 100 years or so before that, um, more than that. <laughs> <laughs> 200 years. Um, and, uh, but, but 
the voices in the play, I mean, the, the way it's written on the page is, I've said this before, is so distilled. It, at first glance, it feels like really thin. And then when you start working it with an actor, you realize how deep the roots go and how, you know, detailed every little sentence is. And you really have you know, good work to do when, you're, when you've got a, a, a page of the work to look at. So I was really, really happy. And I was really happy because it had loads of, uh, yeah, strong parts for women and strong parts for the actors I like working with, which are sort of very real people, people that are from a working class background, people that I want to see on this stage. And I was really keen to cast it in such a way that I had regional dialects, that I had people that were the real deal, in my opinion. So, It is one of the things, when I, when I looked back at the who had been in the original production and saw that astonishing cast list of Jim Broadbent and David Haig and Linda Bassett and Ron Cook and Leslie Sharp and, you know, you name it, and then I saw the people who were on the stage here uh, when I came to see it last week, I, I realised that actually along with all its other many, many virtues. It's a play which actors obviously want to do. Mm. They like doing it, uh, I assume, because exactly as you say, it gives them something to get stuck into. But there is one thing which is very significantly different. Uh, there may be many, but one thing about this production compared with that original production, and I suspect most subsequent productions, certainly in the UK, which is that it's at a much larger scale mm. and um, I wondered what particular challenges for either of you in terms of how the text works and what the actors have to do being in a large space with a lot of mm. volume in the auditorium what challenges does that bring well straight away expected I or unexpected <laughs> well I, I've never worked in this space before and so straight away I was biting my nails about the scale. Um, and it is very epic. I mean, the, the questions raised and the idea that these people, uh, you know, came to Australia, which must have felt like coming to the moon to the people that came off the ship, convicts and officers alike, that I thought, great, we've got scale, the scale of Australia. But still, I was worried about inhabiting this stage and really um, owning this stage with the story that was no longer going to be about the close-up, no longer going to be about doubling up characters as part of the aesthetic and as part of the storytelling. So, um, so one of the solutions was to thin out the doubling. There is still some doubling, but to have more bodies on stage. Another response was to add music to it. Mm. And so people sing and we have the beautiful, you know, score uh, from Karis Matthews. And so music was to fill that. But actually, um, those, those were the first two ways. But I don't know whether you want to speak about, about that anymore, Timberlake, um, about this bigger space. Uh, no, I mean, except to say I was also quite worried because I hadn't seen it on a big, big stage. And um, I, I, had seen, I had seen work that Nadia had done, and, mm. and this is very important because um, there is, 
there is a kind of scale. I mean, the scale in theatre is wonderful, and I love it. And um, it's wonderful to see a director. And I had seen um, Dara, which was also very big. And it's just great to see big work. I mean, we tend to move now more and more towards studio work. And actually, although a, a big stage is very challenging and is more difficult in terms of its relationship with the audience, it is also wonderful. I think that is what theatre was about. That's how it started in Greece. I mean, not that it started in Greece, but in its heyday mm. in Greece, mm. you know, there were thousands of people there. And it, it, it's part of it. So that um, I was also rather ex excited and yet frightened because you're sort of told as a woman, I mean, I seem to be harping on about women, <laughs> but th this has sort of come up, you know, recently that, oh, well, you know, women, you know, rhetoric, oh, really, you know, they can't really do it. And um, you begin to believe that, you know, you begin to believe that whatever you write, maybe it has to be, not that it has to be small, but it will end up in a small space. So mm -hmm. it was, I have to say, I was also just very excited. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it takes confidence in a director, I have to say. And it was, um, I mean, Nadia and I did talk and I did begin to have an idea of, of what it, you know, of the scale of it. And I think having the music is wonderful because I think having a rich production and an active production is important. I mm. mean, it, I, it, I don't think it would have worked with just I mean, you know, eight actors. I mean, it's just lovely to have a lot of bodies. And it particularly worked, I mean, as a writer, you're sort of between the imaginative and the practicalities of the stage as a playwright. And the authorities discuss the merits of the theatre, which is when all these men are talking. Mm. It's great to have a bunch of men talking out loud, loudly. And, and that is something that, of course, the original production could not have. Did did you actually adapt the text at all once it once it went into rehearsals, to, when 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 it opened up like that as you describe it? Did you did you yeah, look again? Very late in previews. There we changed the Aboriginal Australian very mm. late, and uh -huh. that was really because it he was so present mm. and um, in his dance and in his presence, and he was much more present than he had been in previous productions. So that. Uh, the, the language, um, the, the, the three little speeches he had, although they are based on history, felt a little bit wrong. And I think it was Rufus and, and, and you too, Nadia, who felt that the first speech in English um, didn't quite seem right, the first speeches. Um, and we talked about cutting the language altogether. And I was very much against that because I didn't want him to be silent either. I didn't want an Aboriginal mm. Australian mm -hmm. to be on stage and not say anything. So I quickly, quickly studied um, the Aboriginal language. Um, <laughs> like you do. <laughs> I mean, thank Excuse God for really the internet did. is all I can say yeah. because it was right there. And, um, you know, Dawes, who was in the play, had studied it and made a grammar of it. And somebody had studied the grammar of it. So a graduate uh, student to whom I am forever grateful. And I wish I could sing his name right now, but you can look him up. So Bial Bial became... A, a rather interesting study, and I gave him, but he has genuine language. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a change, mm -hmm. and I even cut a bit, and then we had to adjust one character, because although we had many more people, we actually didn't have enough for certain scenes if you mm. don't double. So 
and, and I think that's part of theatre, you know, you adapt to the practicalities and I love doing yeah. that. I mean, I had said to Nadia, I'd love to do some rewrites, you know, let's, let's go. So you're not precious about it, which people are always so fearful, aren't they, about writers being very protective of no, their I text. I wouldn't want somebody else met. No, oh no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Of course I not. I think if, if Nadia had said, look, I'm going to rewrite this bit for you, I think it, she would have had oh. very short yeah. shrift, but of course <laughs> she wouldn't have. <laughs> it would have been interesting to try. But yes. you know. No, I wouldn't have. Possibly But not. yes, the constraints, just yeah. to say, this is part of a travel X season. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we're always more creative within our constraints, but it being a travel X show meant that we, we couldn't have all the actors uh, logistically that were written in the play but also that the set and scenography had to adjust according to our budgets but I think Peter McIntosh has done an incredible job in making it epic and making that sky of Australia presence mm -hmm. uh, uh, and um, so that's also you know part of how we made the show but it, it is and, and I'm glad and I'm glad you said that because um, of course the impact of the design which brings the world of the outback or mm. the not the outback actually but you know the world that, that's beyond where they are into the room mm. um is does something which actually couldn't have been done in in the original production there just wouldn't have been room for it and it it m makes what they say about the about what they can see beyond the the mm. camp very much more present yeah. doesn't it mm. well the and sound design does that as well uh, it does as well absolutely. I mean you can't I don't think easily replicate nature on stage no. I mean as soon as you put a tree here it looks fake unless you, you know I have done a very naturalistic show actually before this with way upstream and Akebourne and Chichester which was real water real boat real ch trees but you really have to go to town and that's not this it, this is not that show mm. and we needed scenes to move quite fast because the way the play's written um, is you know, scene after scene after scene with a very slick and dexterous rhythm. But when we're in this stage, on this stage, when you have an actor come in, it takes, you know, 60 seconds yeah. to walk across. <laughs> so we really did have to look at how it was staged as well in the scenography and how things needed to dovetail a lot more just to keep the audience interested. Mm. Mm. Which you certainly do. I hope so. Um, can I can I ask you, Tim Blake? Well, both of you about the uh, the hi the history. You've written a lot of plays uh, and and other things that ha that have their roots in other periods of history than our own, and um, you have that in common with a number of other very fine writers. Does it seem to you now that the plays um, th that that the themes of the play resonate differently today? from how they did when you first wrote it and and how does the how does the historical context mm. resonate for you Nadia with with what you think about how we live today either of us yeah, yeah. Go. Um, I, th I think I, I mean history is a fascinating thing because it's as malleable as anything else so that if you write a historical play in any case um, it, it will change but also what I love about the stage is that it's the only place where I think you can have layers. That is, you can have a historical basis when the 
mm. situation actually happened, then you know you're in the present because there are people there and they're, you know, it's, it's now. You, you know there's a stage there so that you already have these different layers of history. And then um, a play is written to, you know, at a certain time. I wrote this in the 80s and it was very specifically a response to what was going on in the 80s. But obviously history also has a way of repeating itself mm. and we may be in a sort of similar phase at the moment of not really believing that much in humanity or in, you know, at a time when we judge people according to their circumstances and if they're poor it's because they can't they really haven't tried hard enough, whereas perhaps there may be, there could be other reasons. I mean, we, we are possibly fixing people now in a way they were fixed in the 80s. So I think, you know, the reason the play is on now may be that something we've sort of come full circle. But the main thing really is that history will always shift and, and um, you know, as a playwright, you are always writing in the present and just not using history, but it's just an extra layer, really. It's, it's very hard for me to explain this, but I keep thinking, you know, vertical, you know, vertical strata. Mm. Mm. That's what, and, and uh, somebody in the audience can see all these strata. Mm. That's, that's mm. It. I don't know if you can make that <laughs> or explain. Well, just the, uh, the way we approached it in the rehearsal room, we did immerse ourselves in articles and history, um, of, of the time and of that first fleet, that, that, that we did. But we also plugged into the stuff Timberlake was talking about or uses in the play, which is pri the prison system now. So we had, um, because I've worked a lot in um, prisons and with ex-prisoners and with young people and so on. And so we invited in ex-prisoners who were actors to talk about how it feels to make a play in prison and how it, and some of the reoccurring themes which seem completely timeless, like being brought up in a family that's engaged in crime and uh, having spent most of your life in prison and all of that, which is stuff that I really love to, to do when uh, and was really, um, you know, present in this rehearsal process. We also had a psychologist friend come in uh, who works very specifically with prisoners to talk about um, that and also talk about Auschwitz because some of the um, accounts in the play or some of the sadistic acts of um, Robbie Ross, for example, came from uh, accounts of torture uh, in Auschwitz. So there were lots of threads to follow mm. and, and it was really, really fruitful to do all of that. Mm. One last thing on, on that sort of subject of, of themes or resonances, that there is the play viewed positively is redemptive. There mm. are aspects of what occurs in it which are terrible but there there is also the sense that it is possible to be transformed mm. to be changed and that art is a a, a, a means whereby that can mm. happen is is that something which your own experience Nadia or yours Timberlake of the the world teaches you is the case when you talk to prisoners. Absolutely. Be, yeah. I can't say s strongly enough that working all through my 20s, working with, in prisons or mental health settings or schools, that I th strongly believe that engaging in the arts is not just for artists or actors or playwrights or directors. It's for everybody. It's for our well-being. 
um, and for how we digest our lives and, our, and, and I think it's really important that all of us get the opportunity to engage in the arts. I think it is therapeutic and I think it's necessary um, and I've seen it, I've seen it in, I, I mean there's so many examples where I've seen people um, you know given the opportunity to write a monologue, be in a quick silly film, you know, you know little things where you see people get a voice and, and you know often plays about plays or play plays about the redemptive nature of art can be really, you know, pretentious or wanky. And this is not, this really isn't, I, you know, I, I can't quite articulate why, but it's not. And it feels fundamental and really important at a time where, you know, the arts are being chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped and, and you know, it's just wrong. And it's great to have a play like this on now. I imagine you wouldn't dissent from that. I, I, I don't dissent at all. I mean, I think it's about the access to language. I mean, just to be, you know, to, to sort of pin it down that um, people, many people feel they have somehow no right to a particular language or to any kind of language or to be, or the right to be heard. Mm. In other words, access to language. And art, I think, can do that um, in, in a way. And I mean, I saw a group of prisoners performing a Howard Barker play, and that was when I was just writing this, and it confirmed sort of something I had felt instinctively. But just talking very briefly to these prisoners afterwards, what it had meant to them, and they were th th the intensity with which they performed, and the way that being able to speak the language of Howard Barker, which is wonderfully mm -hmm. rich, what that had meant to them and to access ideas. I mean, we are we're constantly boxing people in and limiting them. And um, I think, you know, art is, and theater in particular, because it's verbal mm -hmm. and it's alive and it's quite fun as well. You know, it's, it's something that can, and it's physical, can open that up and um, I mean, I, just agree, I think it would be catastrophic to, to try to close that down. And we saw what happened when, you know, the books and prisons, mm. you know, I heard somebody on the radio, this was six months ago, talk about what it had meant to him to be able to read. Mm. I mean, he was a prisoner, he was mm. going from bad to worse, and he is now writing, I mean, mm. he's now a writer. The eloquence, again, I don't know the name, the eloquence on the radio at eight o'clock in the morning, I mean, this extraordinary, account of discovering his own intelligence and his language from having lost total belief in himself. I, I, I was in tears and that was six months ago. Mm. So nothing changes. Mm. Um, I have to stop because otherwise her actors are going to be very cross because they won't be able to get on the stage to warm up for the show. Thank you very much to all of you and particular thanks to Nadia and Timberlake. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.